Hey everyone, welcome to this special episode of We're Watching Here. Perry is off this week. My name is Chris Williams. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Joe Scott. Joe is the writer and creator of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. It is a nine-part podcast about the birth and death of the infamous movie website and the scandal surrounding its creator, Harry Knowles. Uh, I've talked before on this podcast about how I was an avid Ain't It Cool News reader back in the 1990s. Uh, for about 10 years, it was the first site I opened up on my computer each day. Uh, and it, it informed my writing. I wouldn't be a writer if I was uh, had not been an Ain't It Cool News devotee at the beginning. But I kind of aged out of it over the years, and I was really sad to see... Um, the situations that led to its downfall. Uh, Joe's podcast is fantastic. It is a really deep dive that gets into the positives, the negatives, the ugly side, and it's it's very thoughtful, um, very well researched. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. There are some interviews with fantastic film critics like Drew McWeeney and Eric Vespi, as well as Ain't It Cool uh, writers who went on to careers in the industry, like C. Robert Cargill, who wrote Doctor Strange, Sinister, and The Black Phone. So I really hope you enjoy this, uh, this interview. Um, Perry and I will be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Uh, it's really cool, so you're going to want to tune in for that. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you're subscribing. Uh, listen to Perry on the Lucy Ann Lance Show in Ann Arbor. Follow him on Perry Loves Film on Twitter. Uh, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, Criticisms, or follow me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. We'll be back in a few weeks, and for now, enjoy this interview with Joe Scott. And now, on with the show. With me today is Joe Scott. Joe is the creator and host of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, a nine-part podcast series that recently completed its run. Joe, thanks for coming on the show today. I'm so glad to be here, Chris. Thank you for having me. I I really enjoyed this podcast. I, I it was one of oh, thanks. one of the few podcasts that I would make sure <laughs> I would listen to the day I saw it come up. I, I enjoyed it. Um I I really this is a story I've been waiting for someone to kind of tackle for a while. Um I wonder if before we get into the podcast, if you could tell our listeners a little bit who might be unfamiliar, what was Ain't It Cool News? Yeah, you know, and what's interesting is that uh, it's kind of been brought back into the limelight again, um, courtesy of Neil Gaiman, whose Sandman show just premiered on Netflix. And during an interview with Rolling Stone, he talked about how there was this uh, disastrous screenplay that was written based on his comic book, and he wanted to torpedo this production from happening. So he leaked the script to Ain't It Cool News and specifically to its writer, Drew McQueenie. And his goal there was to was to harness the power of this website, this rogue Internet movie news website uh, that was created by Harry Knowles in 1996 to destroy this screenplay with its negative buzz because this site had the power to do that. And um, this site helped a lot of productions get made or unmade. Uh, during its prime, which I would say would be around the late 90s to early to mid 2000s. And uh, they not only did that and, and had a major impact on the film industry, but 
They went on to inspire a lot of copycats, a lot of other content creators. Um, the site was also the home for what I would say would be one of the very first influencers in internet culture. That person being Harry Knowles, uh, a long, far cry from the Kardashians <laughs> in many ways, but in a lot of ways, um, very much the prototype for what they they would later master into multi-billion dollar uh, companies. So. I, I was a huge Ain't It Cool newsreader. Um, I, I don't know that I would say it's the first site that I ever visited online, but it came online about the same time we got the internet in our house. Um, and I was a senior in high school. I think that was 96, 97 is when it came around. Um, and it was a site that for about 10 years, it was the first site I would go to in the morning. Even at work, I would open my open my browser mm-hmm. and I would first go to Ain't It Cool News to see what the latest movie news was. Uh, it's funny, I, I've thought about this a lot over the past few months as your podcast has aired. I don't think I would be a film writer if it wasn't for Ain't It Cool. I, I could look back at some old writing that I did on a blog that I started way back before I went to jur- journalism or anything. And I can tell that the reviews I was just writing for myself at that point were extremely influenced by Ain't It Cool News's uh, writing, and sadly, Harry's writing, which was, <laughs> you know, not an example of how to write, but he had this very, I, I mean, casual might be putting it too loosely anyway. It was a, it, it was just like word vomit of how excited he was, whatever was going on his day at going to the movies. Every thought would just be kind of, vomited out throughout the process of his writing yeah i could i could see that in my early writing that i was trying to capture that what i thought was an excited feel you know that that kind of really geeking out over a movie um but it also i i could look and see that movies that drew mcweeney was writing about things like that they were a little syllabus for me as as i was taking my first steps into film culture i grew up in a bit of a conservative culture where I wasn't allowed to watch a lot. And so as I kind of took my steps into the 20s, it was Drew's writing about horror films or Harry's writing about exploitation movies that kind of, you know, encouraged me to take a step out of what I was comfortable with and really add some movies to my lineup that influenced me down the road. Uh, I think you and I are probably close in age. So I'm, I'm curious, what was your experience like first encountering ain't it cool news and and how i know you were an avid reader of it you you actually went to buttnumathon their movie marathon one yeah year. but what was your experience like uh encountering ain't it cool news well I, w- I was a little younger than you um when i discovered it um around the same time and I, i've got to say that it was fun and exciting i grew up in the middle of nowhere i had no access to hollywood or to the trade magazines so this website really gave me what i thought was an insider's view of an industry i wanted to know as much about as i could you know and we you talked about harry knowles and sort of his crazy stream of conscious style of writing and it was cartoonish at times it was vulgar at times it was disturbing and i think the other part about that is that it was also overwhelming to the point where sometimes people ignored the craft and the talent of the other writers who worked mm-hmm. at the site uh, because of Harry. I think one of them being Drew McQueenie. And, you know, in my show, I sort of chart sort of 
a conflict between these two forces where you have Drew who really wanted to take his role and what he did um, seriously. And then you had Harry who, who really saw it as just an opportunity uh, to get into things and, and to, you know, have access. It's sort of those two uh, ideals clashing with each other and uh, one of them winning out. Sadly, not, not the one that I would have preferred. It's funny that you bring up Drew because I think he was the one his writing was, I think, ultimately what put me on the course to eventually outgrow Ain't It Cool News? Um, because I just, mm-hmm. you could notice after a few years, Drew, who I still think is one of the best film writers working, I, I think he he puts out two newsletters right now that are both worth a subscription rate. Um, it, you could tell that when Moriarty, which was Drew's you know, screen name, when he wrote an article, that was something that was coming from a deep knowledge uh, of film history and film production, a love for film, which Harry had as well. But I think also a, a more mature insight into what worked and what didn't work. And he could detach himself from, you know, the work of a director who he might usually like. If they did something he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a fan of. He there mm-hmm. was a more insightful, mature writing that I think over time, it, after about five or six years, I started noticing I would skip any reviews that came from Harry from the website, <laughs> but anything Drew wrote, I I would I would click on that. Um, but you talk about their influence, like when when I was starting to read Ain't It Cool News, which again was about the same time we got the internet was about the same time that those early reviews of Batman and Robin were coming out, uh, that the first screening reviews of Titanic were coming out, which were, I would say, the two big things that you talk about this in your show, they put that on, they put them on the map. And can you talk yeah. a little bit about what their impact was on those two movies? Because that was really what made Ain't It Cool stand out from the little fledgling sites that came out and be reckoned with by, you know, publications like entertainment weekly things like that yeah so i think that really there is sort of that one two punch of of batman and robin where ain't it cool news ran uh, extremely negative test screening reviews of the film as well as extremely negative uh critics reviews of the film before the embargo date lifted and the film you know we can discuss its merits in a moment but the film um opened not as well as the studio would like it didn't make as much money on opening weekend and they immediately attributed that to the negative buzz created by ain't it cool news even though at the time ain't it cool news only had uh and harry admitted this seven thousand followers he thought it was a huge deal that they had seven thousand followers but that's really nothing a drop in the bucket compared to how many people need to see a movie to make it a hit in theaters um but by blaming harry Knowles and ain't it cool news they put a spotlight on the website and and kind of built it up to be bigger than what what it was. But you know, when you're in the perception industry, which journalism is is always trying to sell different perceptions, um, that's everything. And uh, they were able to really harness that uh, and go to the next level. But going back to Titanic, you know, it's interesting now because it stands as one of the highest grossing and most beloved films of all time. But if you rewind, if you rewind to 1996, you had journalists, professional journalists in major magazines and newspapers 
who were sharpening their knives and sharpening their axes. They thought this movie was going to be a huge bomb, mm-hmm. basically the heaven's gate of our time. And, you know, the budget was spiraling out of control. Uh, there were a lot of crazy stories coming out of the set of Jim Cameron yelling at people of, of extras freezing in ice cold waters. And, uh, the the word on the street was this film was going to be a bomb and then and it cool news they ran an early test screening review of that film where they actually said no wait a minute this uh is a great movie it's a a classical popcorn uh adventure you know and we can again debate the merits of that film as well but uh it, it certainly wasn't the bomb that the early journalists predicted it would be and um, and it clearly sort of helped to shift that narrative and and to make people aware of the fact that this is this movie might be special. And for a lot of people, I guess it was. Well, it's kind of interesting to talk about this right now, and, and I'm thinking about it in my head that for people who weren't you know on the internet at that time and have just you know are are growing up with sites like Slash Film or any of the dozens and millions of movie blogs that are out there right now. The idea that there would be this much buzz about a film months ahead or that there would be people invited to early screenings to build up to build up buzz for a movie or that there were casting announcements that were were scoops and not announced like it was a totally different atmosphere at that point. You didn't when I was a teenager, you didn't know anything about a movie unless Entertainment Weekly or Premiere was telling you, oh, yeah, this just shot. This person just joined this. Here's the trailer. This was the first time we were seeing non-journalists go out and report on the movies. And that, you know, that created this whole kind of messy culture of film criticism we have right now. I, it, it, It's kind of strange, too, because I think on the one hand, Ain't It Cool News was the site that told me, oh, you don't have to ha- be a, you know, a newspaper writer to be reviewing films. You don't have to have studied film to be a film critic. You know, you can just have this laptop connection and have seen a movie and put your thoughts out there. Yeah. And and for 17-year-old me, that was great. I look back at 40-year-old me who uh, you know, completed grad school and did his entire thesis on the internet's impact on film criticism and I'm like, "Oh, that that might not have been great at all." Right. You know, I wish I knew what I knew now when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it is this mixed legacy because really, I mean, your title says it all. There's the rise and fall. And there was a spectacular and very public downfall of the several downfalls of this site linked to different scandals. There was allegations of sexual misconduct. And yeah. that's all part of the story. And I guess. I would encourage people just to go listen to to your podcast to hear the whole story, because what I'm curious about is when did you realize this was a story that was worth telling and that you were the one to tell it? Well, you know, to me, there was sort of this. This nagging feeling I'd had for a long time to figure out what went down with this story, because you know, Harry's downfall um, due to sexual harassment, sexual assault uh, was very public. But there were a lot of things about the website that weren't public 
And one of them was, why did Drew McWeeny just abruptly leave the site in 2008? And, you know, I, I saw a story that in many ways connected to something I loved the most, which was film criticism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the in the early to mid 2000s, there was a major change in that industry where newspapers laid off a lot of daily newspaper film critics. And with with that sort of vanguard being you know slashed and burned, all that's left to carry the culture were these online film writers, uh, mm-hmm. the sons, the daughters, the children of Harry Knowles. And you really see that impact today. It's the films that they love that are now dominant in, in movie theaters and in cinemas. And, you know, there's a lot of other factors that play into that. But I just wanted to talk about how, you know, as this one internet movie geek film culture exploded and then quote unquote legit cinema culture kind of just imploded and, and fell apart. Um, what the lingering long-term impact of that would be. And, you know, it, what, what's interesting is in the end, and, and now that we're at the end, I can talk about this more. Um, it was a lot, in a lot of ways, a preview for what would happen to all news, because as these internet movie geeks were left without uh, any professional newspaper film critics to really sort of counter their perspective and, and to highlight other films they may not be interested in, it prioritized escapism. And now that newspapers have had to fire all of their staff and not just the film critics, uh, we're seeing sort of escapism in other facets of life. Everything from, you know, your standard uh, political news where you have uh, conspiracy cults like QAnon, uh, just putting out just complete and total fantasy into the ether um, to even finance. You know, you look at uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs and that's really just escapist, uh, escapist financial news in a lot of ways. Just We can create this magical place where uh, this electronic money is worth more than real money. And, you know, it's all just intangible and, and from our imagination and, that probably makes a lot of people happy and excited, but it's not helping anyone. Well, I think one thing you also very deftly mm-hmm. weave through and, and I appreciated this was talking about how things that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have even connected five years ago, but, but now can see very clearly something like ain't it cool news is talkbacks, right? Which were these, yeah. these, this comment section, which now every site has a comment section, but I believe they were one of the first, if not the first, to use that. But that was a that was something that very early on, I would visit the talkbacks and just kind of walk away feeling icky. Uh, you know, you would you would yeah. walk away feeling like, oh, I, I don't like this because people were people were mean. It, it was extremely misogynistic. Uh, people, it, it was the first time that I saw that when people could hide behind a screen name they could really dehumanize whoever they were talking to and just fully go at them with just the meanest, most vitriolic comments. And that has bled over into areas of our cult, so many areas of our culture, but, but things that you really don't want that to bleed into like that, that is our political atmosphere right now, right? That is the reality. When we log onto Facebook to look at the pictures of our friends, kids, we get sucked into, a lot of the same name calling and bullying that you could see in those talkbacks. Yeah. Yeah. I think that 
you know, looking at the talkbacks, is that the first comment section in the history of the internet? I did a lot of research on this. And what I can, I can't say that it definitively was the first comment section, but the site that everyone says is the first comment section, Open Diary, um, came out uh, in October, I want to say of 1998. And Talkback um, was launched on Anticle News uh, three months earlier in July. So um, that's, and I haven't heard of any other forum that started before that. So uh, I do think they are the first comment section in the history of, uh, of websites um, that said, yeah, they, they really did take sort of what was the currency and a lot of news groups and sort of hidden buried spaces of the internet. And they brought it to the surface of the monetized, easily accessible internet. And so you're having adults who are engaging in these terrible discussions, but I think, the other thing you're having were people my age, kids, people in their early to late teens. And this is how they're learning to talk to others on the internet. This is how they're learning what is or is not normal in -hmm. terms of just discussion. And I do think they've carried that, those lessons, those terrible experiences uh, to other spaces. And and they're not aware that they're even being abusive, but that's really what it is, is abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it it was ugly. Even like 21 year old me knew, oh, th- this this is gross. This this just feels icky. I just want to read about movies. Um, but but I think also a lot of times some of the reviews that would just appear on the site would be that I, like you talk a lot about uh, Joe Hallenbach, who yes. did not hold <laughs> anything back. I mean, was he the one who wrote about screaming death to Schumacher at the uh, Batman and Robin Death to Schumacher, and you know that was honestly one of his lighter reviews. Uh, yeah, he eventually wrote a review of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, where he, you know he wished death on George Lucas and his family, his entire family. Which you know George Lucas had two children and uh, wanted Lucasfilm burned to the ground, and it <laughs> it's just you know you write that today and i know, and i do feel like federal agents will be knocking on your door but at the time i think the privilege of anger was just so normalized um in this culture that no one really saw those messages and thought anything of it i think it, it's later when people started communicating violent language on the internet and then making good on it in real life that we've realized hey maybe we should ask someone to knock that off or yeah. at the very least, you know, boot them off the site or the forum or whatever. Yeah. Now, how long were you working on this? When did you get the germ that I, I want to pursue this? I know I want to track down these writers. I want to, I want to tackle this as a podcast. How long were you working on that? And how much di- different did the final project look than what you had planned? Um, you know, I started in October of 2020. Um, I had just gotten uh, involuntarily terminated from a job. And um, it wasn't a great uh, event in my life. I was really angry at the way things went down there. Um, it was actually over a podcast I was supposed to create for that job. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. They they hired me to create a, jo- a podcast. Um, I was working for a nonprofit, and one of the things we tell are success stories about how we help people reenter the workplace. 
And I interviewed this person, and it turns out he was a pedophile youth minister. Oh, God. Who uh, was arrested for uh, sharing child pornography of kids um, ages, I believe, as young as four or five. And uh, I didn't want to create a success story about this person. Yeah. I I didn't want to do it. And my supervisor's stance was, well, we... Since we told this guy we were going to make a success story about him, it would be awkward to then like change our mind. And I was like, I don't care what's awkward. I'm not doing it. So uh, two weeks later, I was let go, which was fine. I'm, I have a much better job now. I'm really happy. But, um, you know, in that time, I was like, man, I have a lot of free time now. I'm going to tell a story I've been wanting to tell for a long time. And so I, I set out uh, in terms of how I imagined it versus how it is. Um, you know, I, I definitely didn't imagine as large of a story as I ended up telling. Mm-hmm. I think initially I thought, yeah, I can knock this out. It'll be like a four part podcast. Uh, and then I started doing research. I was like, yeah, I could probably knock it out in six parts. And then finally in the end, I, I was like, this is a story that needs nine parts. I'm going to tell three parts about how the site was created three parts about sort of how there starts to be cracks in the surface and then three parts about um, the fall and how everything falls apart and what that does to a community. And, um, you know, I think once I I locked onto nine, um, you know, I started telling that story and, you know, there's great things about, you know, having that goal because it kept me from making it 12 parts or 15 parts. Uh, There were some people who would love for it to be that long. It would have killed me. Um, but then the other thing was there were parts of the story I had to let go, but I, you know, it, it, that's what, that's what it is. You, you put a lot of ingredients in the shopping cart. And then, uh, when you get the cash register, there's just some things you, you can't pay for and you got to leave them behind. Well, and I have to imagine, like, I, it's very easy to think, oh, it's the story of a, of a website. So how complex can it be? But there is so much. Like, just you can't even talk about whether Ain't It Cool News is, you know, a, a objectively good or bad thing because I, I I enjoyed reading it. I benefited from it. I, I think there are there were some genuinely great writers who came out of that site. Yeah. But I think there... it also had an impact on film culture that I, I think was detrimental. I, I think it had an impact on film writing that may have been detrimental. Um and then it's also this thing that you have to acknowledge you liked, you were impacted by, but it also was part of a culture that gave rise to a lot of sexual abuse and misconduct and exploited its writers. And I yeah, I have to imagine getting your arms around that was a very tricky thing. Did you have a team working with you? Yeah, so I, I definitely had a team. You know, once I started working on the story and I realized we were going to be handling, you know, themes that from different perspectives, you know, take on meanings I might not be able to perceive. Um, I knew I needed to work with someone just to sort of help, you know, measure my impulses, make sure that I wasn't always, that I was never barking up the wrong tree. Um, and I immediately found that person, my, uh, my first collaborator, uh, behind the scenes, Chris Bell, Kristen Bell. She, you know, I had created a pilot episode, 
um, shortly after I started the project and I shared it with some people and I shared it with her and she wrote me back, you know, and she liked it, but then she also let me know the things that I needed to work on things that needed, needed to be addressed to be fixed. And I was like, I really would like for this person to join me. And so um, I reached out to Chris, told her about the project, asked her if she would like to help me. And, you know, I'm very lucky. She said, yeah. And really she has helped a lot, you know, and, and we tackled a lot of complicated themes and, you know, she definitely had her experience as a media studies professor there to sort of help guide the project. The other thing that she did that was a great idea was she saw, and I saw this too, that this story had a lot of male voices. <laughs> there were a lot of men, uh, mm -hmm. not a lot of women, especially in the beginning, in the early days of Ain't It Cool News. And I was like, how do we fix this? And her idea was we should interview media scholars, women media scholars, to sort of bring extra context and perspective and to really help, you know, completely round out the story. And I thought that was great. I had a lot of great conversations. One of my favorites being uh, with a uh, with a media studies professor from Syracuse named Whitney Phillips, who she's done a lot of studies on trolling and sort mm -hmm. of the impact of trolling culture. And uh, that was a great conversation. And uh, we actually did it, I think, shortly after shortly after the uh, January 6th um, insurgency. And one quote she said, and I'm going to butcher this, but one thing she said that I didn't really get to use on the show was that, you know, a lot of people were surprised when January 6th happened, but there were, there were women and queer people who were not surprised. And that's because for them, the danger has been, has been more readily visible uh a far longer time. And I, you know, I'm just really glad I got the chance to talk to her and, and that would have never happened without Chris. The other great collaborator on this project was our sound guy, Eddie Garcia, who he works for a local NPR affiliate. And uh, he also runs sound for a lot of different music projects. And he also has two different bands and um, he got to work with us and it was, it was a great time, you know, and it was an, experience for me too because i'm learning about a media a media company that didn't treat its employees well and i'm mm -hmm. i have these people who are working for me and it really made me consider my responsibility you know to make sure i'm not overworking people that i don't expect too much from them that i give them the opportunity to you know spend time with their families so um it, you know it was a great experience i, I learned a lot and I really think I forged two really meaningful friendships in the process. And I really enjoyed Kristen's presence on the bonus episodes. Um, I did too. Thank and, you. And, and maybe the only bonus episodes I've ever heard where you read and engaged with your negative reviews. Like yeah. that, that, and I mean, you didn't, you didn't pick the easier negative ones. You picked some people who were really adamantly angry or, <laughs> you know, a lot of times just pissy for no other reason to just to be pissy, it sounded like. Um, and, and you did that very graciously, which I think when you're talking about a website that was often known for its toxicity, I, I appreciated the fact that you showed what, you know, it, it was like to be gracious and engaging. So I, I appreciated that. Well, you know, I, I, I thank you for that, the, 
but at the same time, you know, I, I sort of had a lot of time to think about that. And I realized maybe that was a mistake and I'll, I'll explain why, um, you know, I, I did read a lot of the most negative vitriolic uh, comments as in a lot of ways, as part of a social experiment. It's like, you know, here, here are examples of the way anecdotal news has impacted discourse, you know, in real time. But then what I was also doing was by reading those most negative comments, I was encouraging other people to make them as well. And I was sort of, I made this comparison, I think on one of my comment section episodes where I was sort of like this dog owner who was giving their dog treats for shitting on the couch. (laughs) And I was creating these negative comments and, you know, the comments got really, really bad. Someone started tagging me in a lot of just aggressive posts. Um, The same person started making sexually aggressive comments about uh, both me and Chris and I realized, well, you know, here I am. I'm, you know, Harry Knowles let a lot of people just make really uh, like basically to make sexually violent statements about the women who work for a site. And he let it happen for nearly two decades. And it was like, do I do what Harry Knowles did and just keep going? Or do I try to find a way to stop it? And re- I realized I was encouraging this by reading those comments. And so I, I backed off. That's that's fair. That's and I think uh, I heard you address that in the last comments. And as much as I did appreciate your graciousness, I also see that that side of that. Um, you mentioned Harry, and eventually we'll have to talk a little bit about Harry. But one of the things I really liked about this podcast was you found time to talk to so many of the writers who I think were overshadowed by his personality, you know, as you state very early on, he was the only one who didn't have a, uh, a code name to hide behind. And, you know, I I think you pointed out, you know, it's a way to kind of keep them anonymous while he gets to be front and center. Um, And and I really appreciated that you took the time to talk to Drew McWeeny, who, as I've said, I, I think he's a fantastic film critic. I think his, you know, his writing for Ain't It Cool was often very good. I think he would also acknowledge that that association eventually was very harmful in many ways for his career. Um, it, it, but I appreciate the time you took with him. Eric Vespi, who, you know, when I started reading, he was just a kid a little bit younger than me. And I've watched him over 20 years, you know, mature into a really solid film writer yeah. and the co-host of what is one of my very favorite podcasts right now. I love the King cast. Um, yeah, and, I and, do too. and then just the other night, you know, I watched, uh, I watched the black phone, a movie that probably wouldn't have existed without ain't it cool news because of the relationship formed by its writer, C Robert Cargill and Scott Derrickson, who started communicating because of Cargill's writing on the site. So I, I know you've said this before, but you really wanted this to be, a series that also elevated those voices. And and originally you weren't even going to speak to Harry at all, correct? Yeah, that was the goal. You know, I, I was really, you know, I'll lay my influence down. So I was really influenced by uh, the Polly Platt season of You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth, where she told the story of this artistic director, Polly Platt, who worked on a lot of films with her ex-husband uh peter bogdanovich mm-hmm. uh, the great director of movies like the last picture show and paper moon and you know before they split up and got divorced and 
I ultimately, what I liked about that was that she did this whole story that was seriously adjacent to the work of Peter Bogdanovich, but made no attempt to interview Peter Bogdanovich because one of the points she was arguing was that Peter overshadowed Polly Platt and the importance of her work on his films. And, you know, I really think that if it wasn't for C. Robert Cargill or Eric Vespi, and especially for Drew McQueenie, there wouldn't have been any cool news. You needed the staff writers to really round things out to uh, de-Harry Nolsify the whole thing. Um, Otherwise, you know, I think it would have enjoyed a little bit of popularity and gone away much, much quicker. But uh, I, I just think the contributions that the cacophony of writers, that's something Drew referred to, um, made um, made the site what it was. And it, it, you know, I was really wanting to tell the story about them because not only did they really help make the site what it was, but they paid in a lot of ways a dear price for their involvement. You know, with the exception of C. Robert Cargill, who got out while the getting was good. You know, here are people who, you know, were really harmed by their association with the site who were who were used who you know they weren't getting paid for their work even when they were told they would be mm-hmm. um you know and i think even now because they work for the site um their the their association is still held against them you know drew hasn't worked for anic cool news since 2008 but people act like he was there the whole time just in cahoots with harry knowles and it was um uh, it was important to me to show, you know, the nature of these relationships and how they made these people feel because it, it hurt them. And and I think there were some people in the, especially in the last episode who were hurt and I was glad to really give them a chance to voice that, you know, and that's not as important as the women who were assaulted by Harry Knowles, but you know, I, I think it's definitely part of the story and I'm glad I could tell it. Did you find most of the writers were pretty willing to talk or was it hard to secure those interviews? Well, you know, like it was sort of um, a matter of hearts and minds, you know, and one of the first people to do an interview with me was C. Robert Cargill. And I think the reason he chose to do an interview with me um, is because, you know, I'd mentioned that he made the wise choice to sort of get out of online film journalism and film criticism um, well ahead of the time, you know, like he got off the Titanic before it hit the iceberg. And I appreciate that, you know, he saw that, that I saw that he had that insight uh, early on because, you know, he got out, he was still, he still had a career there, but he just realized he had to get out. And so he did the interview with me. And then I think after I talked to Cargill, um, a lot of the other people started talking to him, hearing that I wasn't just there to bash them or bash Harry, you know, even though I do say a lot of negative things about Harry, um, that I was interested in the real story. And once they knew that I had a, a sincere interest in their actual story and the actual history, um, more people started to open up. Uh, the toughest nut to crack was Eric Vespi. And, you know, I, I say nut to crack, that, that sounds very flippant, but, you know, he was very hesitant. And honestly, I, I still wonder if he's even glad he did do an interview with me. But he was really, you know, if you listen to the interview, there are times when he really expresses 
both remorse and pain. You know, he was hurt. Yeah. You know, he really, Harry Knowles was his hero. He started working for Harry Knowles when he was a kid in high school. He was his mentor, you know, and I think that he, you know, he really had a very rude awakening in 2017 when he realized he was a party to this thing that he helped give this person a voice, a platform, which he would abuse on a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think he was having a hard time expressing that. I think he also just didn't trust that anyone cared, you know, and there is a part where, you know, he starts getting a little sad uh, because Harry kind of made all of his memories of his entire professional career tainted. And, uh, you know, he suddenly was apologizing for being sad. I'm like, you don't have to apologize for being sad. You know, that's two decades of your working life. And there's just sort of this pall that's been cast over the entire thing. That's that's sad. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, ever, yeah, it's not Go even ahead. just two year, two decades of his career. It's his entire career at that point. Like that yeah. was his first job. And I, I can't I kept thinking back because I, I you know, I could live vicariously through Eric's writing because he was writing for the site and, you know, going on the set for Lord of the Rings, getting a cameo in King Kong, interviewing Steven Spielberg. And I assume for him, these are, you know, these are once in a lifetime moments. And then, yeah, like you said, it it all comes crashing down because he's he's working for this this man who is not paying anyone. He is sexually assaulting women. And how do you mingle that? Like the good and the bad. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, every time he would start talking about good memories, it immediately would sort of bring back sort of remorse and, uh, you know, and it feels really messed up that I'm even saying nice things about the past. knowing it's all connected to this. And, you know, that's, that's his entire adult life. And yeah, yeah. I, I'm really glad that I was able to talk to him and, you know, I'm also just grateful that he went through that and, and came out on the other side as someone who, you know, is a stand up person. You know, when yeah. the stuff against Harry Knowles came out, he didn't take Harry Knowles side. You know, he, he left and he left the only job he's ever had uh, facing complete and total uncertainty because they're not just throwing out jobs for film critics. You know, <laughs> like, no, they're not. They aren't, you know, so he left the only job he ever had, the only career he's ever known. Um, with no assurance that there would be anything for him on the other side. And, and, you know, yeah. And I think the moment he he talks about that, when when they basically, he and there was another person as well who left at the same time, correct? Steve Procopy, yes. Okay. And the stand they took knowing, you know, this is my income. This is two decades worth of work. This is basically my reference list. I'm putting that all out there and saying I'm going to do the right thing over holding on to that. That is that moved me because that is a stand that a lot of people wouldn't take. They would, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of people might just sit back and say, well, we'll, you know, just kind of wait till it all blows over. But he walked away from his only job to do the right thing. And, yeah. you know, I, I've never met Eric. I've had a few interactions with him online, just, you know, tweeting about movies back and forth. Um, but, I remember when they announced the King cast, I was so happy because he was he was the writer I was watching to see how, you know, wanting him to be able to recover from from that, wanting to see yeah. that, yeah, he's going to be a voice out there. And he's he's doing great writing for Slash Film these days. I, I think, like I said, the King cast is 
a fantastic podcast. And I was kind of pumping my fist when they actually got Stephen King on there. Um, And yeah, I I appreciate that those writers were front and center. Um, I also have to assume that getting interviews with the survivors had to be a delicate subject. It was, you know, and, and the one thing I'll say about that is that I had interviews off the record with, uh, two of the women who came forward with allegations and um, one of the women who did not, but um, had sort of behind the scenes made allegations as well. And, you know, my approach to that was, you know, the last thing I'm going to try to do in my position is uh, try to coerce these women to do anything they don't want to do. You know, and it was really a thing where I asked point blank, and they said how they felt and I respected it. And, you know, I think some people look at that as a failure to not get an interview with these people. These, these women want to move on with their lives. You know, mm-hmm. they went through this thing, they came forward. Um, they were, um, one of them told me she was flat out harassed by multiple people after she made these allegations. There's when you make these allegations, there's people who choose to attack you. There's people who choose to assault your credibility there's people who just flat out don't believe you and call you a liar. And, you know, they, they did not want to go through that again. And, you know, I wanted to, I still want to tell their stories. And so, you know, I worked with them just to verify all the details. They checked all, all the information I shared just to make sure it was accurate to their experiences. And that was their involvement, you know, and, and honestly, I'm I'm beyond happy with just that. I think that too often in podcasts, especially podcasts like true crime podcasts, um, there is a desire to to get entertainment from the pain of survivors. Yeah. And, you know, someone said that my episode about the assaults was boring, you know, that I that I kind of go through this this whole section where I talk about just the institutionalized misogyny in internet movie geek culture. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not trying, this is a story about systemic sexual harassment and assault. I'm not trying to be entertaining. <laughs> like that's not the the goal here to, you know, yeah. to entertain you. And, you know, the other thing I will say though, is that people read those, the or listened to those parts of the show where I talked about, you know, just say anything and how it presents this guy's clearly just harassing a woman won't leave her alone. She dumped him and he won't accept no for an answer. Um, He has to come to her house with a boombox over his head. And it's presented as this iconic moment. It's also harassment. And the people who do that in real life, um, you know, they're committing a crime. Really? It's a crime. Like I could call the cops on you and have you arrested if you were to Mm -hmm. do that outside my home. And um, I'm glad that we were able to sort of present that, that, the mirage that a lot of men are presented about, you know, what masculinity means and what it means to, you know, be a romantic hero and, and how in your idea that might be romantic and in your perspective, that might be cool, but in the perspective of the woman, it's, it's harassment or assault. Yeah. And I mean, I, I still haven't reconciled with you ruining say anything for me, but uh <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Yeah, I, but uh, I mean, no, it's the same, like you know, my dad. I remember when you know I'm 12 or 13, 
Revenge of the Nerds comes on TV, right? And he's like, I'll watch this. This is a great movie. And that's a movie whose entire like victorious moment at the end is centered around sexual assault. Yeah, there's <laughs> and, a rape that occurs. And it's but, the, yeah, the heroic rape. But I think it's also like, it's it, you, the systemic approach has to be taken too because it's very easy to write it off and say, oh, this was just Harry Knowles. He was a, you know, a bad egg, right? But I wasn't aware that uh, you highlight, you know, the abuse that, you know, is alleged to have gone on at the Alamo Draft House, a theater I never went to, but I, you know, it was like, it, it was a place where, I always wanted to get there. We had one in Kalamazoo about two hours from me and my wife bought me a gift card and it closed before we could go. But, oh. but, uh, but now knowing that that was part of that culture, it's like, Oh wow. That's, this wasn't just isolated here. I mean, birth movies, death was a site that I graduated from ain't it cool news and started reading birth movies, death. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah. and, and again, another site where I think, great writers have come out of i, I think scott wampler who co-hosts the king cast is fantastic i think meredith borders phil nobile jr they're, they're all great but again at the center of it is you know another another writer who really seems to like the spotlight and it comes out that there were allegations of sexual assault against devin faraci yeah you know and that was interesting because I think there, you know, you'll find the people online who they're like, "Oh, fuck Harry Knowles all day long," or you know, even "fuck Devin Faraci all day long," and then they continue to go to the Alamo, not, mm-hmm. and maybe they just are oblivious to the connection. But I think many of them are just willfully choosing to ignore the connection that the Alamo enabled both of these people to do what they did, like, and they knew about it, and they didn't take a stand, and even after these stories came out and, you know, they apologized and they disavowed any connection to these people. Um, They continue to have these problems, you know, it's just something that's sort of baked into the institution Mm -hmm. uh, that they have not addressed successfully as as far as my knowledge is. And, you know, I've had a lot of great times at various Alamo theaters. At, At the same time, I'm wondering now, should I, patronize these spaces you know what, what's mm-hmm. my responsibility you know are they are they doing everything they can to ensure the safety of their employees of the women patrons who go there and you know if you look at uh, the disputes they're having right now with their own labor union with their employees in in austin texas the answer is no like they mm-hmm. they're they're still putting their employees in compromising situations they're overworking them uh, they aren't taking care of them. Uh, these are unsafe environments. And um, I think that as a moviegoer, I, ha- I have to eventually put my money where my mouth is. You know, and Regal is not as cool or as fun or as sexy of a movie theater chain, but I guess I'm going to Regal for now on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a podcast that I kept thinking about when I was listening to Download was, uh, and I think it got mentioned in one of your early comments sections, was The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I, I don't know if you've heard of, heard of that podcast or listened to it. I have since listened to it, yes. A lot of the similarities struck me, and, and I responded very strongly to both podcasts, I think because, you know, growing up, my culture was church culture and movie cultures. <laughs> and this is kind of, you know, the, looking at some of the you know, more disreputable things of both those cultures. But it's funny because I did 
see a lot of parallels in the fact that, you know, a church like Mars Hill, which, you know, for those who haven't listened to it, was a church based out of Seattle, uh, several different sites that really kind of grew up wanting to be, you know, the punk rock, you know, get the men in their church. But it's reaching out to kind of people who were sick of church, done with church, right? And it has an audience that wants this, that feels seen and wants to be a part of this. And there's a charismatic leader at the center who is incredibly toxic. And I couldn't help but think back to Ain't It Cool News or even something like Birth Movies Death or Alamo, which is attracting this this geek audience, you know, this audience of film lovers who people don't remember 20 years ago, it wasn't cool to love, you know, sci-fi movies and superhero movies. And it gives them this home with this leader at the front who they can kind of put as their uh, their figurehead. And then it just enables so much toxic behavior on that leader's part. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you a, a quick question, Chris. What's mm-hmm. your denomination? So I grew up Baptist. Okay, um, yeah. I, I grew up Baptist. We Southern cur- Baptist? Uh, there's about a hundred different types of Baptist in the United there States. There are. Yeah, it's like um, Pokemon. So I attended several different types of Baptist churches. Um I currently, I, I would just consider myself non-denominational right now, which okay. if you okay. ask most people, that's just saying Baptist. But we actually attend a Presbyterian church because my wife works there. Um, but I, you know, it's an evangelical Presbyterian church, and I'm not comfortable identifying with evangelicals at the moment. So it's well, it's all a mix yeah. of things. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I grew up in uh, Southern Baptist churches. My, my okay. father was a minister. Oh and, really? You know, yeah, and you know, and the, the the interesting thing that happens there, I think, in church culture, a thing that I'm seeing all the time now is that they're constantly trying to rebrand. You know, saying we're not your grandma's church, mm-hmm. we're not your grandpa's church. You know, we're different, we're fun, we're cool. But then you know, you stick around long enough, and it, the same ideas keep coming back. Uh, the the idea that I really struggle with, especially now as the parent of a daughter, is that women are property. Mm-hmm. And so um, it makes me uh, really not interested in these pieces. You know, the one thing, you know, I'll say about the Mars Hill podcast, I enjoyed it. There were parts of it that were really good. Um, but it, it's almost like they were waiting for the world to be better. That one day women will be treated uh, correctly at church. One day that's going to happen. Like, why can't it be today? Why can't it be now? And, you know, I think for, I think it all people's to a difference in perspective where, you know, I'm agnostic and unchurched Mm -hmm. and this person is clearly churched. And, you know, so he's speaking to his experience where I'm just saying, you know, if you feel like women are being, you know, institutionally oppressed by this, by this organization or by this culture, like get out, mm-hmm. get out. I, you know, the minute someone, you know, makes my daughter feel like she has to be subservient to another human being because they were born with a penis. I'm like, great. I'm not associating with yep. you anymore. Bye. And that that's just how I feel. hundred percent. That was one of the, you know, when we, uh, when we began you know, attending the church where my wife works, one of the big questions I had was if a woman wanted to be a pastor here, could she be? And 
thankfully, this church, that could happen. And there's it's a lot more open. You know, it, women are treated equally there, which growing up Baptist was not always the case. Um, but I, I agree with you. I've always said, you know, if your faith community is not teaching you how to love your neighbor and protect your neighbor and care for the people who are underserved, you need to find another faith community because that's that that's not what I want to believe. Um, well, you but, know, and I'm glad that you've you've had that um, realization for yourself. I think that's uh, very positive. You know, I, I myself sort of I I want to say that I practice and exercise my spirituality through um, just trying to help others and, and mm-hmm. to really, you know, like through my work, you know, in, in this project, I don't, I don't want to say it was a religious piece, but, or, you know, some people have accused it of being political. I, I don't think that's entirely true, but I, I definitely use my work to speak to, you know, how we need to make online spaces more inclusive, mm-hmm. um, that we need to listen lift, protect, defend the voices of people who aren't cis, straight, white men. Um, and I did a lot of that because, you know, that's that's the life I'm bringing into this world. And and I, I admire that. I, and I think, yes, what you did with this podcast is a force for justice, right? It's It's giving voice to the people who didn't have it. Or, you know, years later, people still will defend Harry Knowles, even though they know the allegations. And... People, I did get messages from people who did want to defend Harry Knowles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we probably got to talk, I know we're almost out of time, but we probably do got to talk about Harry Knowles a little bit. because Yeah, sure. Because obviously he's at the center of this, and I, I don't know that Ain't It Cool, you know, obviously, literally it doesn't exist with him, but does I don't think it gets the traction without that figurehead at the center, right? Like, there were other movie sites coming coming on board you you did an interview uh with the uh the editor of coming attractions which was a site i remember reading just as much as ain't it cool news and then i i think you know it was that charisma from harry or just the you know what did he write about blade (laughs) too yeah that kept bringing me to that so i don't think there's a site without him there and he is this you know this force of nature that i think kept that site in the public eye but that means that when he, you know, w- when the truth comes out about him, that entire site collapses with that, which people were already leaving at that point. So I was very curious inside baseball, the listeners, we actually tried to do this interview about three months ago and, and, <laughs> and got into really horrible technical difficulties. And I'm glad at this point we got to talk about it after the podcast, because one of the questions I had was, did you attempt to talk to Harry Knowles? And you said no, and that is true. You did not attempt to that talk to true. Harry Knowles. Yeah. Um, but you reviewed revealed in your one of your last episodes, I, I think your very last episode, yes, that Harry Knowles attempted to talk to you. And you had <laughs> what was it like a five hour interview with him? Yes, I did. And that was I, I know you said in your last comment section that very few people got to the end of that interview. I was one of them. I listened to that whole thing and it was weird. It was yeah. very uncomfortable. Um, I, I think you handled it very well. 
and, and you were very direct with bringing up the the sexual assault allegations, the you know kind of more problematic things about the site, and the way he would try to charm himself out of it was just very disturbing to listen to. Yeah. No, it was, um, you know, I did, I recorded that interview in 2021 and, you know, I produced the whole entire series and really didn't listen to it at any point during that time. It sort of just stayed there on my computer as sort of this haunted file on my internal hard drive <laughs> that I just didn't want to go back to. But, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that as people listen to the interview that they understand why ultimately choosing not to include him in the narrative episodes was the right choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, there are people who asked for a, the full five hour version of our conversation and having released um, roughly two hours and 20 minutes of it. I hope people also agree that, you know, editing it down was also a wise move on my part. <laughs> like he, just, he is a rambler. He's a rambler. And honestly, I, I deleted a lot more rambling uh, I probably deleted about 10 minutes, 20 minutes of rambling from the footage that I shared. And, you know, he was just uncontainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the it, the conversation just ran to all sorts of places that I never intended. But, you know, I tried to just stay the course, you know, and, the, and really, I think the one thing that I did accomplish and it was the sole objective i had was asking him if he would apologize to the women because um that's really that's really it i think some people wanted me to come in like a hero and you know verbally beat the shit out of this man um that's not my interest um i don't think i am a vehicle of justice so much as you know someone trying to tell a story and you know in in my story the only thing he can really do now is apologize. I don't, he's never going to return to any sort of popularity, fame, or power, but he could apologize. And that won't be like this upbeat, positive ending to the story of any cool news, but it will at least, I think, restore some part of him that I, I don't think it will ever be found, unfortunately. It was very interesting. I mentioned uh, Birth Movie's death, and you mentioned it in your in your podcast, and everything that happened with Devin Faraci at that point. And and I will say, like before the allegations against Harry or Devin ever came out, if you were to ask me which person I, I found more likable, it was definitely Harry Knowles. Um, I loved reading Devin's writing. Yeah, but man, he he could be mean. He would he would go after people. Um, I mean, he he was a bit of a bully, um, and, and I think that was kind of his badge of honor. Uh, if you listened to the podcast he did with Amy Nicholson, uh, the canon, he would just take great pleasure in telling her how wrong she was. And Amy Nicholson is one of our great critics. Um, I love I, Amy Nicholson. What I found so so interesting, like, and I I thought about it again while you were talking to Harry as I was listening to that, um, you know. When the allegations came out against Devin, he went silent for, I, I believe, over a year. It might have been even longer. Yeah. Um, and he did. I, I, I think he has several times talked about, and it's been confirmed, It's I think it's even been on a TV show. He talked with his accuser, right? He talked with his victim. Yeah. And 
I, I, you know, you read things online, you don't know how valid everything is, but I've, I've kept up with some of the blogging he's done and he is someone who seems like he has been very, uh, you know, humbled by what has happened to him. He's, you know, become a, a very, uh, committed very committed and interested to buddhism um and, and his tenor of writing has changed you know in a way that is it's softer it's more aware of his own issues and i i appreciate that he has taken responsibility um but then you listen to harry and it was just constantly felt like spinning around your question or i think there were two or three different you know explanations he tried to come up with and it was just so disheartening to hear that even when he has the chance to uh to acknowledge wrongdoing or to you know uh, to apologize or to say you know yeah i need to get these people on the phone and apologize to them he you know it it spun off with that well i was on drugs or i was uh you know i don't think they'd want to talk to me anyway and it's just a sad ending to that legacy yeah it's you know unfortunately an instance where i think someone is unable to see the perspectives of other people and and you know especially true of his accusers the survivors but then also the other people who work for his site and you know one thing i will share is that you know as i was getting ready to interview him um one of his former writers was talking to me and they're like, oh man, I wonder if he's going to say anything about me. Like, what's he going to do? Is he going to talk about me? What's going to happen? And then, you know, I do the interview and then they're like, did he say anything about me? What did he say about me? And, you know, the truth is he could give two fucks about anyone who worked for that site. He didn't talk about anybody. You know, he talked about Jew, but that's because I specifically asked about him. Um, You know, in the, in that five hour period, it was all, it was all about him really. Yeah, um, it it was very selfish, and he's not really able to see outside himself and the harm he might have caused um, other people. And, and very, sad. very telling that he did offer an apology to you. That to that you're the interviewer. Your image of him was tarnished, and you called back to uh, you know, to almost famous, and you know, just make us look cool. And you know, it, it was hard not to see those echoes there. Yeah. Yeah, I that was the one piece that stuck out in my mind for a long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, why on earth did this person apologize to me? And yeah, I I really do think it was just his his in a way. He I I'm imagining there's in his mind he thinks this interview is going great. Yep, that he's had you know that he's getting it out there that everyone's going to see things his way. This is the this is the turning point, and you know he. I think he says that one last thing to me and it really, to me, that just dubbed a a whole brand new bucket of cold water right in my lap. I was like, I felt gross that, you know, he did not apologize to these women, but he did apologize to me. And yeah, like I said, I not choosing to include him in the narrative episodes, even when I had interviewed him was the right choice. Yeah, I, I agree. I will also say, I think uh, having having read his stuff for a decade, the actor you got to read his stuff fits more with the Harry Knowles in my mind than hearing him actually speak. <laughs> yeah, I had um, Alan Cerny recently talked to me and he said that uh, 
Ben Jones, he's the voice actor who played Harry Knowles in my show, that he was a better Harry Knowles than Harry, which I think is true in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, yeah. No, so that's final, really funny. Final question I have for you on this. What do you what do you think Ain't It Cool's legacy is at the, at the end of the day? Is it something people are just going to forget about? Is it going to be known as, you know, the the place that created this toxic environment or the place that changed how we write and talk about movies? Or is it all of that? I think it can be all of those things. I, to me, it's a place where I learned the importance of media ethics, you know, that it's important to approach your job in in media with, with ethics and to, to hold yourself to a standard to, you know, if you're reviewing a movie, do not interview any of the talent because that leaves you tainted. You know, mm-hmm. that leaves your your review biased. Um, you know, if you are in a situation where you are hosting these screenings for movies, make sure that every person involved in getting away those tickets isn't abusing that power, you know, coercing people for things they might not want to do. Um you know, in terms of its impact, you know, I think a lot of people forgot its impact. And when my story, my story first started coming out when the, when the podcast debuted, there were people who accused me of lionizing the legacy of an equal news of inflating its importance. You know, it, it's not until recently when people like Neil Gaiman came out and said, no, like this was very, a very powerful vehicle for us to use for our own agendas. They feel like, oh, Maybe uh, maybe they weren't wrong after all. Maybe they're just reporting the truth and not lionizing. But um, I think that, you know, the history of the Internet is, you know, they say it's written in ink, but I really think it's written in dry erase marker. <laughs> and I think that people forget the history of the Internet really um, at their own peril, because I think knowing this story and knowing what happened to the people involved can help a lot of people avoid the same mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, I hope if anything, just, just telling the story in the way we did and, you know, through the perspective of, of a fan who realizes in the end, he can't be a fan of this thing anymore. Um, that maybe, maybe some people will, uh, will take those lessons and, you know, use them, to avoid making the same mistakes, use them to make the internet um, a better place, uh, a more inclusive space for all people, you know, if nothing else, you know, just at least, you know, expect moderation from the places we go to talk to others. Two things you brought up there that uh, I I couldn't agree with more is um, one. No, I don't think you overstated any cool news is important. Like I said, my, my thesis, my grad thesis was uh, on, the changes that the internet has brought to film criticism. And part of that included a history, you know, a history of film criticism in the United States. Actually, I think it was globally. Um, And there is definitely, there are definitely two points where you can see film criticism shifting. And that's, you know, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel taking it to TV. And then Harry Knowles and ain't it cool news changing that definition of who can be a critic what access looks like and how we talk about it. And that that's a huge point that we are still 
feeling the effects of and i think you tackle you know that rise we call it casual critics you know in in my study um they're they're the critics these days right like they the film enthusiasts yes. yeah yeah it's um you know it's funny i was part of the detroit film critics society for about 10 years and you could look back when we started and i think it was 20 people were part of that organization and i i want to say a dozen or more of them were all full-time critics working for a newspaper and if you look at that lineup now there is i don't think there's a single newspaper critic um because there's one working out of detroit and that's adam graham uh who is yeah. fantastic but i don't think he was he's part awesome. of the organi- he's he wasn't part of the organization the last year um but everyone else it's you know they're they're on their websites they're on their sub stacks and you know, I, I think that there is legitimacy that can come with that. There are good critics doing great work, uh, including many people who used to write for Ain't It Cool News are now publishing great Substacks. Um, but it's it opened the gates. Ain't It Cool kind of said everyone in the pool and got to reconcile the good and bad of that. Um, but also, I, I think back when you say don't interview the people who made the movies that that you're reviewing, right? Yeah. I can remember we would have people come through the town where I was a reporter and, you know, you'd get to interview Rain Wilson for The Rocker and <laughs> Jason Jason Reitman for um, Juno and Danny Boyle for Slumdog Millionaire. And I I can't say confidently that my reviews for those movies were not a little bit softer because I had met the people who were involved with them. Aside from maybe The Rocker, which I, I don't even think talking to Rain Wilson could have made me like that movie. But, uh, but <laughs> I you haven't do. seen that one, but it, uh, yeah. It's rough. It's rough. But uh, it, it does influence you. And it's that, you know, that almost famous thing. You made friends with them and they made you feel cool. Yeah. Friendship is the drug they sell you. Yep. Because we all want friends and it would be great. Wouldn't it be great if Rain Wilson... Dwight from the office was your friend. He fist bumped me. I, I was very happy about that. I and I bet you told a lot of people. You're like, you know, Rain Wilson fist bumped me. Yep. You know, and I have stories like that. And you know, what's interesting is interviewing filmmakers. I, I interviewed someone off the record, um, who worked on Marvel films. They did not want to be on the record. There's they're just <laughs> swarmed by NDAs. One of the things they told me was that it was their job to sort of manufacture those experiences. You know, when they, when they knew they were having a media day with all of these film writers from all these websites to go to the prop, this lockdown prop facility where they keep all their props and to take out the Captain America shield and bring it sort of set in the corner. Like it was there by accident. This, this very expensive movie prop just laying on the floor, you know, like it's an accident, you know, really just, you know, it's a game of seduction and they're yeah. seducing you. And- Which also is part of that ain't it cool legacy because a lot of those set visits, those bring the bloggers in and, and show them things is, was a reaction to, you know, the, the scoops that ain't it cool was getting. And they decided let's control that experience. Let's, let's get this audience who wants to like our stuff in here and yeah. and show them how great it is. And we control when that comes out. Now we control what they see. And, you know, th- they get a free trip out to Hollywood and get to meet Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. You know, and I mean, 
I gotta say it, it's disheartening when I see it, but you know, there's, there are film writers, people I respect. I'm not going to name anyone because I, I don't like calling people out, but you know, when, when swag gets handed out for movies, sometimes I'll see these people saying, you know, it'd be great if I could get that swag. Mm-hmm. I really like this movie. Maybe send some swag to me. And you know, it's, we, I think the, the film writers have just gotten too close uh, they've gotten too chummy. They think they're friends, and you know that you can't you can't be friends and then write about something objectively like that. I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, what is next for you? Are, are you doing? A, are you going to do another series? Or yes, yes, we are. We we had a meeting. Uh, Chris, Eddie, and I. We we met in person for the first time. We worked on the show. We live fairly close to each other but we worked on the show fully remotely because it was a pandemic production and Mm -hmm. you know it's a podcast so we don't have to be in the same room together um but we met in person we had some drinks and um we spitballed some ideas and uh i i think we locked on to three different concepts that we're hoping to unfurl between now and the end of 2004 so awesome awesome well in the meantime where can people find you as they uh, as they await those? Yeah, so um, you can find us all over social media under the screen name Download Pod. That's Download with a W. Pod is in podcast. Also, our website DownloadPod.com. and um, you know you can find our our podcast on any platform. Now, I, I recently added it to both Stitcher, Audible, and Amazon. So now I, I do believe it is actually available everywhere. And um, yeah. All right. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I appreciate this. Thank you, this. Chris. I enjoyed this, and uh, I look forward to what you do next. Yeah, man. Thank you. It was a really good conversation, and uh, best of luck to you. Take care. Bye. Bye.